What's good? Will Freeman, RevolutionaryLifestyleDesign.com, talking to you today about how to prepare for a currency reset using the example of Brazil in the 1980s. The reason I'm doing a lot of videos on in, in and around these subjects is in light of my course release, How to Survive the Great Reset, which you can catch at RevolutionaryLifestyleDesign.com forward slash courses. I felt it was really important to get that out there this year as well as my net worth course. Because since the pandemic in 2020, I've been strategizing, researching, speaking with friends, three, speaking with guys in the RLD Brotherhood, my six, seven, eight figure clients and friends, and going back and forth over and again, backwards and forwards, setting targets, taking them down, setting targets, taking them down to where I felt like I had a proper plan and a proper understanding of what was going to happen. In addition to doing a ton of research on what the reset rollout looks like, what AI is going to look like, um, you know, back testing different strategies, you know, going through research of what's happened in inflationary times or, or deflationary times in, in, in um, the resets that, that came about because of that. And the reason for all that is in light of post pandemic, what has happened in the world. And if you're switched on, I think you know what I'm talking about. And I realized that the advice I was living on in the 2010s, make 25K a month, live in Southeast Asia, Latin America, Eastern Europe, spend seven grand a month, put the rest into your business, back into your business or in, in investments, I think is not going to be enough to secure with certainty that we get through this decade at the same level of survival and thrival. And we need to aim higher. We need to aim for eight figures. And we need to be prepared for everything that's going to come down the pipe because we're going to see three major changes. We're going to see technological change in the form of AI eating people's jobs and, and disrupting every business. We're going to see monetary change in terms of a reset of the global financial system as well as the implementation of central bank digital currencies. And we're going to see changes in governance uh, moving closer and faster towards a global government governance system uh, with policies implemented worldwide, as you could see um, the coordinated efforts during the pandemic. This is not a political take or political opinions. This is not the channel for that. This is the channel for playing the game of life, learning how to play the game, mastering the game. And the game is fucking changing and there's a whole new set of rules. And if you want to survive and thrive at the highest levels and have the maximum amount of happiness and enjoyment in your life, you need to learn the rules. And a major part of, of learning the rules and being able to prepare for what's coming is to go back through history and study examples of currency resets brought about by economic disorder. In this case, Brazil in the 1980s, uh, where you had a strongman government, as tends to happen in Latin America, um, a lot of the time pushing aggressive social policies or socialist policies, I should say, without a thorough understanding of economics. And as always, the end result in aggressive socialism is the same, a collapse of the economy and the currency. So Brazil in the 80s went from like high to hyperinflation. And as the government lost control over the economy and the, the currency, they launched a reset overnight. So this is what would have happened if you were um, in Brazil at the time. So you woke up, all the banks were frozen, 
accounts were frozen. Couldn't log into your bank account. They didn't have online banking then, but that's how it would be now. And if you went to the bank, you weren't able to withdraw anything. And they announced over the media that what they were going to do was they were going to reset the currency and issue new notes of the Brazilian real. And it was going to be a one-to-one um, a media exchange for people with a small amount of funds. Meaning, if you had a couple grand in the bank, uh, you would get a one-to-one -one exchange. Your old $2,000 would be replaced with 2,000 of the new notes. And you'd probably get a couple grand in cash to help you get through the transition. That's basically the, the um, you know, incentives for the, the lower middle class and poor people not to riot. You're gonna get your money right away. You're actually getting a bit of extra money. So you're actually doing better than you were before. Um, and therefore you ideally will continue to support the government and not riot and start a revolution. Everyone else, if you had, I think the number was, well, don't quote me on the number, but let's say 50,000 or more, which in the 1980s in Brazil would have been a good amount of money considering it's, it's still a developing country in a lot of places and was certainly a lot more developing back in those days. Um, so they said that people that had more than like 50,000 liquid in bank accounts, you're getting a one-to-one -one exchange um, on that money for the new notes. You're not getting the $3,000 surplus, but you're not getting the money right away. And you're going to get the money over an undetermined period of time. The result being a lot of people didn't get that money until three years later after the currency had continued to be devalued over that three-year period. Not only that, but the money that they actually had, they couldn't access. So unless you had your money in you know, primarily in equities, properties, and things of that nature. If you were primarily in cash, you were basically wiped out for that three-year period. And three years later, when you did get the cash, it was worth like 15% of what, you know, it originally was. And a lot of people didn't even receive the money. Um, so you were decimated if you were in cash. And the same thing they did for bonds and GICs, where both individual and institutional uh, owners of bonds, if they were heavy into them, were destroyed. Because what they said was those are denominated in the old currency, right? Because it, a bond is, um, you know, a government IOU of this old currency and it's locked, the IOU is locked in um, to that particular old currency. And they said that's, you know, <laughs> now off the table. You don't get those. Those are in the old currency. The old currency's out. Uh, we're going to issue new bonds in the new currency, but because yours are in the old currency, you're done. So that gave them a real chance to wipe the slate clean on um, their uh, the government liabilities, right? The, the bond is basically a government IOU. And I'm not sure, but they might have done that with... Um, foreign investors as well and foreign governments. I, I can't be sure. Um, but it, even if they didn't, their bond rating would have been, you know, decimated, right? It probably took them 20 years to be able to build back trust in those bonds. Um, and that that's a major 
uh, part of, of the reset that they felt they had to do was because they had a massive, you know, they had this hyperinflation and then they had massive amounts of liabilities and bonds like every government does, right? So any kind of economic disaster wreaks havoc on the government's ability to pay back those bonds. But that is sort of a last stage measure for governments because they know that if they default on the bonds or they soft default and try and um, arrange a like longer, lesser interest payment, um, it's a major ripple effect for the economy where when their bonds are downgraded, um, it, it means very little to no foreign investment, very little to no um, locals investing in the new bonds and a major loss of confidence in the economy with foreign investors trying to pull their money out. It creates all types of ripple effects, right? So that's usually a last resort, um, but it's, it's what they felt they had to do to be able to wipe the slate clean and be able to, you know, surely help them pay back their obligations, um, you know, for, for the other things that the government was obligated for, you know, the social security programs and, um, you know, I'm sure they're, they're, um, you know, invested in other countries or, you know, have, have other foreign, um, investment in their, um, various assets and stuff. So they also have their own debt liabilities, right? To the, truly to the IMF. Um, if you read Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you understand how that game works. Um, you know, each country's got, especially developing countries, have a fair amount of liabilities. And if they can't pay them off, they have to renegotiate. And a lot of the time they, they have to give up their water supply to a, a foreign uh, country in exchange for getting terms on this money that they borrowed. And so I'm sure they had to free up, you know, capital to be, be able to pay for all those things. I can't say in, in exact detail, but I'm guessing around that situation. So they wanted to restart and re, restart the slate uh, and wipe the slate clean. Um, so just imagine a scenario like that, right? Now, let's think about how it could play out in, in the future. And, and there's Zimbabwe and um, why we're republic to study and and the US during the Great Depression, but you've got to be careful in terms of how you study them because Weimar Republic Germany or Brazil is hyperinflation uh, The Great Depression is deflationary depression. So that's a completely different game where the currency actually appreciates um, You know because the supply has been restricted whereas in hyperinflation the supply is overinflated and the currency uh, depreciates so the way that that could unfold in over the next 10 years or at some point in, in the next century, I mean, it's guaranteed to happen in some countries in this century. It happens every decade in at least some countries, right? But if we're talking about sort of the Western countries, especially the U.S. dollar, um, we want to look to see if it's, if it's either going to be a controlled or uncontrolled situation. And we can't, you know, really gauge either way. Um, we could only speculate. So controlled would be the ideal, uh, smooth, gradual transition to CBDCs. I'm not saying CBDCs are ideal. I'm saying they are planning on doing this reset either way. It would be preferable if it was a slow, gradual transition to CBDCs, a long beta test, um, a long test working out the kinks of the software, not trying to phase out cash immediately. They are planning to phase out cash. They've, they've done it in Nigeria thus far, and by they I mean uh, 
um, you know, the, the think tanks behind a lot of these policies, World Economic Forum, these types of people, the, you know, bankers and, and um, you know, these types of commissions that influence policy and, and are on record saying it's, it's going to be, you know, policy for all countries. And, you know, the Fed has spoken about replacing cash, um, phasing out cash. They, they're on record. They're launching, I think, the CBDC this year or next year. Uh, it's being launched in Thailand already. It's been launched in China for four or five years. Uh, China's coming out of the beta test. So this is happening. So I'd rather see a smooth, gradual transition to that and, and relative stability in the economy and the U.S. dollar, uh, especially, you know, for guys like us where we primarily don't live in the U.S. but sell into the U.S. Um, you know, we want that economy relatively as healthy as possible and stable. Uh, I'd like to see it still going through the commercial banking system. There was a point where they were talking about CBDCs um, being wholesale, where you'd have an account with the Fed, which as a foreigner who doesn't live in America, I could see a ton of problems with that and getting KYC'd. And, you know, what would I do with my U.S. dollars that I own in these foreign bank accounts? How's that going to work? I would just imagine that would be a damn mess. But it looks like they're going through the commercial banking system to where ideally all the updates to the system are made on the back end and your currency accounts in your banks stay the same, your balance stays the same. And it's now just, and, and they've, instead of calling it FedCoin, it's still called the US dollar. They've stayed with that brand. And, um, you know, it's just now denominated in CBDC, but nothing's actually changed in your account or your app or your ability to access your funds, except that, you know, wire transfers and, and you know, transfers between accounts would now be um, settled immediately without the four-day manual wire transfers on Swift where like an employee has to, you know, approve the thing. It would just be a lot more um, streamlined and things of that nature. That's, that's sort of the best case scenario. Um, and it looks like I think that's what they're attempting to do. I, I would certainly hope so. Um, and, you know, if you've heard about these experiments with programmable money that they want to do and will do, uh, geofencing money into certain locations, um, I would like to see those things not implemented immediately. And I think they, they won't implement those things immediately because they're going to want to attempt to promote CBDCs as a good thing and not to create a bunch of chaos. I think that's something they'll do once everybody's already on CBDCs. Because it's going to be a big sell to put, once people figure out what these are, to put people on CBDCs where you're paying for everything in a QR code and you're phasing out cash. Like, especially the older generation, you know, is going to have a problem with that. So they're really going to have to get soft sold into these things. I also think there's probably going to be some incentives for using them, like stimulus checks or some money into your accounts for, um, you know, people willing to do the beta test and things of that nature. The non-ideal scenario is the one similar to Brazil, where through some factor outside of the, the control of the um, people in charge of monetary policy, uh, either based on a, a deflationary uh, pressure on the money supply or hyperinflation, um, probably provoked by a major shock to the system, like, for example, OPEC no longer supporting the petrodollar system, and instead of selling their oil denominated in USD, they sell it in a BRICS-based currency or, um, you know, in Bitcoin or euros or, you know, euro backed by gold or whatever the thing is, right? I would say 
probably the biggest challenge to the petrodollar would be the yuan or the whatever the BRICS-based currency is going to be. Um, the BRICS countries are Brazil, China, India, and Russia. And they're all scared now that Russia's been removed from the system, SWIFT system. They're worried that that could happen to them. They've already been planning this in advance, and they've sort of accelerated the timeline on it so that, you know, removing Russia from the SWIFT system was was probably a gamble that's could potentially really hurt the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency in the future, and it kind of accelerate the timeline of that being moved off the reserve currency. Now, that doesn't mean that the yuan would replace it. It's it's probably more likely there's multiple currencies, but it could replace the U.S. being the sole petrodollar. Um, you know, if those the Saudis and the other OPEC companies would be willing to sell their oil in terms of yuan or the BRICS-based um, currency, and you know, there's there's rumors that it's going to be backed by some type of commodity hedge or by gold directly, and and that would be the selling feature of using the BRICS is that it's a quote unquote hard money system as as the U.S. dollar was until 1971, backed by gold. Whether they do it or not remains to be seen, but but that could be the selling feature. So all those things combined could really. Um, create a real shock to the system system because for the U.S., um, you know, being able to expand their credit supply um, in, in such large proportions, right, which is what other people refer to as printing money. It's actually, you know, the Fed creating credit and, and most of it's the commercial banks creating credit. Uh, they need $10 trillion in global trade. That, that's what's accounted for in, in U.S. dollar global trade right now. So if, let's say the U.S. was, was removed from the petrodollar system, right, that might be two, three trillion, four trillion dollars there. I don't know the exact numbers of the U.S. dollar not being traded, right? Um, which is a real problem when the country is used to being able to expand the credit supply at a certain amount and all of a sudden, they either have to decide to, um, you know, reduce the credit su supply significantly across the board and risk deflation or continue to print the same amount of money, but with 40% less demand during, you know, for yearly global trade and risk an inflation scenario. So in my opinion, it can go either way. You know, the guys in, in our brotherhood, revolutionarylifestyledesign.com forward slash brotherhood, which is our strategy group for how to survive and thrive in the next decade completely legally of course just learning how to play the new game and how to make sure that we're all wealthy healthy and happy and have our freedoms um, are leaning more towards hyperinflation but i could see just as likely a deflationary scenario um you know it, it, in it, over the last 30 40 years they they've leaned towards inflation um it it would be you know difficult for a politician to try and pull off what was done in the depression where you know it was austerity and it was deflation but their hand might be forced if if hyperinflation or higher inflation if they start to see that coming the deflation alt alternative might be um, preferable than than a weimar public style hyperinflation if, if that's what they see on the in the cards um so that's controlled versus uncontrolled now let's talk about potential potential future outcomes. So here's how I could see this playing out. So the government puts uh, there's been whisperings that 
that with the CBDCs, the programmable money, the universal basic income, which will be necessary as AI just rips through the bulk of people's jobs and they there's like there's going to be a large part of the population that is unemployable not to mention there's already a large part of the population that is on you know generational welfare um so their situation would get even worse um and so ubi uh programmable money um i could see money being geofenced to a particular location i could see carbon credits being implemented um because you know the the if there's an economic collapse across the world, there's going to be problems with shipping lines, right? You know, Peter, uh, um, I can't remember his name, but, uh, you know, there's economists saying the, you know, the problems with the, with, with the food supply, if there's an economic collapse is, is the shipping times and, uh, supply chain and all that stuff. And, you know, but by, by implementing, you know, carbon credits that would stop people from being able to buy a certain amount of meat because there will be potentially a reduction in that, right? Um, and so people with less money wouldn't be able to afford that. People with more money, I'm sure, will be able to buy carbon credits, right? Um, you know, so I see that there's, there's sort of these limitations and restrictions being put in place for them to be able to potentially control hyperinflation if People can only spend the money in these locations. They can only buy from Amazon and certain approved stores. They can only buy so much meat, so the price of meat isn't inflated and, you know, things of that nature. Um, and they're able to directly stimulate the economy right into people's bank accounts, but it doesn't turn into hyperinflation because it's programmable money. So, you know, the, the population that is receiving that money, the poor part of the population, they have to spend that within a month, right? Um, they have to spend that out and, you know, it, it, it keeps the economy stimulated, but not hyperinflated. And I mean, I'm, there's probably an incredible amount of economic depth that, I, that I, you know, I'm not sure I'm capable of, of getting into, but I basically see a lot of these measures that are talking about being put in place. They're putting place in advance. Um, you know, I mean, you, you could argue that, you know, this is a, a power grab and it is, you know, but, you know, politicians have always been arguing for a power grab. But I think a large, another part of this is they are seeing that this, uh, the current uh, monetary system is breaking down. Um, the debt is spiraling out of control, uh, all kinds of social liabilities. And I don't think they want this to break down on their watch and risk some type of uprising. I think they want a smooth transition and they want to be able to check inflation um, without having to resort to the old hard money system and a major austerity period, which would be counterproductive and, and create a you know a depression, which creates problems for them and problems for the country in general. So I think a lot of these policies are, are going to be put into place to control inflation. Um, and I've heard things like limiting how much people can own and hold in a personal bank account. Right. And I don't think that would be the case for wealthy people because wealthy people will just have everything in assets. And I think you'll be able to own as much currency as you want in your uh, business bank account. And, you know, if you can only own a fraction in your personal account, wealthy people just have like a recurring, you know, daily salary going off 
from the business or something or from their investments to fund the personal account and it would be much the same. But for, for people that don't have businesses, for poor people and um, don't have assets and things of that nature, you know, it, it would restrict them in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that that's part of kind of the control mechanism to keep the economy under control and try and keep it stable. Um, you know, I think some of these policymakers are um, monetarists and they follow the modern monetary theory, which is like debt doesn't really matter. You can inflate as much as you want, which in a sense is completely crazy. In a sense, it's kind of true because it really is about narrative control. Like as long as people keep go along, going along and playing with the system and using the currency and not rebelling, even if they're getting poorer and poorer each year, the system is still under control as long as they control that narrative. And there is a greater potential for them to be able to implement modern monetary theory when they have a CBDC that's tracked and traced and you can program money and you can restrict the amount people can have in personal accounts and you can uh, restrict where they can spend it. You can restrict the amount of meat they could buy and um, perhaps other goods that become problematic with the, uh, you know, uh, problems in, in shipping lines and supply lines and things of that nature. So they'd have more control than, than was ever possible before. So you start to see how these things could become uh, possible. Um, but I don't think, you know, when you talk about owning nothing and being happy, I think they're just talking about people without money, unfortunately. Um, which is going to be a lot more people than there were before. I see the, the gap between the rich and the poor growing exponentially as AI replaces people, right? They become redundant. Um, you know, 100 years ago, there was a cobbler that made shoes, right? That's become redundant. We moved to a service economy, but stuff like ChatGPT and all these things like copywriters, a lot of assistants, a lot of... Um, you know, office workers who just do paperwork are just going to be replaced by machines, right? You know, and it's basically a service economy now in America. You know, all the goods and services will be shipped from Amazon and into the large grocery stores, if even if, if, there's, if they still exist or it's just all online. Um, so that gap between the rich and the poor is, is going to grow regardless of this reset, just from, you know, AI coming in and changing the game, right? Um, so I think it's more the case of, of, you know, a lot of middle class become lower class and ideally guys like you and I, we push it to the limit and, and get into that 0.01%, right? Make it happen. Um, I think it's really only going to be the top 10% that are still going to be comfortable throughout the transition. Uh, although the, the, Poor classes will be comfortable in a different way in the sense that a lot of people won't have to work. You know, they'll just be inside, you know, their apartment, geofenced income on the metaverse and on Instagram and on all this bullshit, right? Unfortunately, I think that's that's how it's going. And I think a lot of people are, you know, are going to actually enjoy that, um, you know, because they're already living online, right? And they, they'd prefer that than being out there in the struggle and trying to you know, get to the highest levels. Um, so I think that it's more going to be the case of, you know, the, the poor people don't own any property. 
um, don't own any businesses and you know clothes are on kind of a subscription model everything's on a subscri subscription model um, but you'll still be able to like they're not going to get rid of owning businesses um, you'll be able to own properties from what I've read you'll just have to you know pay the ESG um, taxes and set your property up for solar panels or whatever the bullshit is to service the ESG um, now they might convert it to a 99 year lease like there is in China and Southeast Asia I'm already used to that if I were to buy land here I as a foreigner can't own it unless it's a condo which I can own outright in China even the citizens are on 99 year lease we can still play with that that's still playable you know we're probably not gonna live another 99 years unless there's some crazy technology and in the process you could still sell it um, you know the game's gonna be changing it's it's you know perhaps more difficult but as long as we can own businesses as long as we can own property or at least a long-term lease our assets we're gonna be able to play the game <clears throat> and I think it's near certainty that that's gonna be the way it's played out because it's gonna be the wealthy people implementing this, right? And they're gonna to wanna to stay wealthy, right? And if there's all kinds of restrictions on a personal account and inflation potential, right? They're not gonna want that. So there's gonna to have to be, you know, rules and regulations to be able to win the game, so to speak. And that's basically what we're doing right now as expat entrepreneurs, myself and, and the Brotherhood. Um, you know, we use the laws to our advantage we set up foreign corporations and subsidiaries and you know bank accounts in different countries all legally to minimize the tax burden just like google does just like um you know wealthy people do around the world and politicians and they have panamanian accounts which are legal they're they're offshore they're out of america but it's legal to own an account and hold money in there and things of that nature right so you know the the game isn't rebelling against it at least not the one that i'm i'm speaking about here that's the activist game right i don't think you can be an entrepreneur and an activist at the same time because your activism will affect your ability to make money and, and succeed right and vice versa so you know if you're an activist go the activist route but if you committed to entrepreneurship and playing the game it is what it is and you want to play by the rules and learn the new rules so that you stay out of trouble. Um, you need to watch your fucking mouth on social media like I've been telling you before because social credit's coming in. Um, and, you know, think about these future outcomes, right? So to continue on, I think, yeah, the wealthy can keep business bank accounts, assets, trust, um, you know, and, and handle the situation. And it's just changing rules. You're going to need money to buy carbon credits. You're going to need money to buy social credit. If you have, ever have a problem, it's probably a charitable donation or buying a government bond. You're going to need money for travel permits around because we're going to, you're probably going to implement 15 minute cities, uh, probably be more type of KYC to be able to fly. Um, flying is going to be more expensive because you're going to have to pay the carbon credits, right? This is why guys like Al Gore was setting up carbon credit companies in the, in the 2000s, right? Like they know what's coming, they're trying to profit off of it. There's going to be huge money in in social credit repair and selling carbon credits and things of that nature. Um, like if you think credit repair is a big industry, imagine social credit repair when if you have bad social credit, 
you can't go to university, can't travel, can't get a bank account, you're fucked, right? So you're going to have to keep clean and be a good boy, but also have money to be able to, you know, pay the services to, to repair that. So I think that's a future outcome from this uh, currency reset. And I realize I'm speaking about a lot more than um, what, what looks to be just a standard monetary reset like it was in Brazil, but this isn't just going to be a monetary reset in one country. It's going to be a currency reset and a reset of the monetary system with these incredible technologies that, that, and I don't mean incredible and necessarily in a good way that now exist for, um, controlling the system. Um, so that's what you need to be prepared for. And if you want to be seriously prepared, go get my great reset course, how to survive the great reset and my eight figure net worth game plan, both available at revolutionary lifestyle forward slash courses. These have been years in the making. Um, if you've been wondering what I've been doing, I'm running multiple businesses, but I've also been focusing on these, not just creating the course, but going back and forth with guys in my brotherhood and my friends, my clients to figure out what it is to survive and thrive. And it's about knowing exactly what's going to come down the pipe. It's about knowing, having a plan for every single, um, you know, technological implementation, having a plan for hyperinflation and deflationary uh, collapse scenarios, having a plan for controlled and con uncontrolled um, reset scenarios, knowing where your base is going to be based on, you know, do they have a you know free and available food uh, to where you don't have to rely on shipping lines? Would it be a non-violent place if there was some type of collapse? Um, you know, is your, is your income arbitrage to where it's easier for you to afford the travel permits and social credit and things of that nature? Um, all these different factors and just setting a higher target on, on where you want to be 10 years from now in terms of wealth, which I think you should be aiming for decamillionaire, which puts you at the top 50,000 to 200,000 people out of 6 billion. So this is, this, this course is not a, a guarantee by any means. It's a game plan and it's a, you know, um, understanding of money, but also, why I think you should aim for that as opposed to, you know, the advice from the last decade, make 25K, move to Thailand, 25K a month, et cetera, move, move to Thailand, you know, get in a seven-figure net worth, invest properly, keep pace with inflation, cruise, don't have a big team. I, I, I'm not certain that's going to get you through. And even if you don't hit eight figures, if you still hit five mil when you, before you would have been aiming for one mil, um, you're, you're a lot better off. Um, you know, and keep in mind what I'm saying 10 million, 10 years from now, you know, if inflation continues to rise, that 10 million is, could be 6 million in today's dollars. Right. Um, so, so that's why I'm setting or, um, advising to set kind of that aggressive target because we don't know what the actual nominal, uh, or inherent value of that's going to be um, in, in, in today's money, right? We have, we could assume, you know, quite a high level of inflation, if not hyperinflation, we could see a couple of years of what's going on with the Turkish lira now, 30 to 40% inflation, right? Um, and, you know, going back and forth with guys about you know, going hard on gold or going hard on Bitcoin. I mean, I hate them both. I hate all investments except for 
business investment. It's just um, you need to be prepared for interruptions in income. And uh, hyperinflation or, or deflation is a big fucking interruption in your business income. That might be an 80% hit on it. Um, you know, as well as the psychological security of having a property that you live in and things of that nature. And just going back and forth with guys over what the get best game plan is. So I have multiple game plans to get there um, for you based on your risk profile and, you know, um, the investments you feel comfortable with. But I don't think you can just be there with gold and Bitcoin. Hey, I'm going all in on gold. I'm all in on Bitcoin and I'm crossing my fingers and that's going to get me through. That is not a fucking plan. Um, you know, if you watch my last video on buying and selling gold, like in an actual disaster scenario, just getting your gold out and being able to sell it is a fucking problem. You know, theft is a problem. You know, criminals are going to be on the hunt for gold, things of that nature. Um, you have to war game the entire thing about shit hits the fan. How much did you have? How much is coming in in business? What revenue hit did you take? Do you need multiple streams of income? Um, you know, to where you've got a business, one business that will do well in hyperinflation, one that would do well in, in deflation. What are you selling? Um, you know, can you take an 80% hit and still live a dope ass lifestyle on, on the 20% that's left? Um, you know, hedging across multiple asset classes. There is a lot of, of complexity and I've, I've done my best to war game that out and, and clear the path, both in terms of exactly what's coming um, and preparing for it. And then exactly the game plan that you should use uh, towards that new sort of eight figure target, or maybe you already had the eight figure target, right? Uh, now it doesn't have to be like, you know, 10 years from now, you're, you're a decamillionaire. It could be, you got five and you got five million coming a year in, in revenue, right? Um, but overall, I like that. I like that number. I think the deck of millionaire is going to become the new millionaire, um, the way that things are going. And I think now more than ever, while there's still a window open, um, you want to be aiming for not just the 1%, but the 0.1%. And I, I realize that this type of advice is a lot perhaps less possible or available to a good amount of guys, but only if your mind's closed. If you have a good business flywheel and you have a marketing machine in that and you have the balls to just take out a six-figure salary instead of, you know, 30, 40 grand a month, just dump it back in, you got a real shot. And especially if you um, pivot that into multiple vehicles, I just want to make sure that you guys, especially if you've been following me since I started writing in 2012 or doing videos in 2014, I want you to stay with me for the rest of my life. And I want to make sure that I've at least given you to the best of my knowledge, the most important game um, required to get you through. Because, you know, for me, a life well lived and making money is great, but I don't want it to say on my tombstone that, oh, this guy made some money and had some girls. That's that's worthless. I think God wants more for me and I want my legacy to be what you did and I want you to be prepared. And in addition to that, I've, I've got another 13 or so co courses being launched for every facet of, of this life game to where I'm going to be 41 in a month. I think by the time I'm 44, that mission will have been accomplished to push all those courses out. And, you know, 15 years later after I started, I feel like I've systemized lifestyle design. 
and stayed on point. And coaching programs currently closed. If you have questions about this, I'm just managing some of my old clients, but the best way to reach me and speak about this is in our brotherhood. As I said, revolutionarylifestyledesign.com forward slash brotherhood, where I'm in there at least three times a week answering questions and we're strategizing. And, you know, I'm learning as much as I'm giving value in there. It's a, it's a great group of six, seven, eight figure entrepreneurs. So highly recommend you join that as well if you're serious about this stuff. And other than that, I hope this video found you well. I hope you are not too worried or put in fear. I'm telling you there's a plan for everything where there's a will, there's a way. And if you're ready to get aggressive and you know take action on, on getting your money right and understanding this stuff, um, you know I truly believe that you can make it out better than ever. And I think you know with chaos comes opportunities. There's going to be a lot of business opportunities that come about um, based on you know, all this sort of upheaval that's happening, happening, right? So keep the mindset positive. Um, don't duck your head into the sand. Look clearly at the stuff and, you know, commit that you're going to make it and you're going to be better than ever and have all your freedoms and have an even better life than before um, due to that commitment. So appreciate you, you know, happy you watch the video. God bless you. Much love to you. And I'll catch you on the next video.